my general philosophy is I think there are a lot of problems, incentive problems that you get when you do compulsory state schooling. But I think the bigger issues with schooling in general than public versus private. And then what Lenore Skenazy, who I mentioned earlier, is trying to do, she's trying to make it that schools are, she's got an organization called Let Grow, kind of like Let Go, but Let Grow, where schools have more unstructured playtime for kids. This, this thing that used to be called recess. And she's gotten a lot of good traction in, in different schools in the Northeast, allowing more and more of this in the school. So, you know, there's, there's different colors of it all over the spectrum. Just give people more opportunities to go out there and discover new things. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my Ray of Truth, Miss Bradley Lightheart. Bam! Hey, guys. Hi, Johnny. How you doing? Great. How are you? Well, I have a funny story for you. I want to hear it. So I was waking up early in the morning, and I'm going to my new job as a audio-video technician. Right? That sounds official, right? So yeah, I was cool. doing my thing as an AV guy, and I'm driving all over Guam to get to my next gig, and I see this, like, trailer, right, with a, a big crate on the back of the trailer. But the trailer on the back of this truck was, like, a foot tall. Right, or like the gate on the back. It's like a foot tall. And I see this big, like, it looked like a refrigerator. It looked like a, 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 it was in a crate and it looked like a refrigerator and it had straps on it. And this dude is hauling ass. Like, this dude is only going like 18 miles an hour down the highway or freeway, rather. Okay. And all of a sudden I start seeing like flying off the back of this, this vehicle. So I'm thinking to myself, something's wrong, right? Like, we have an issue here. Like, this cannot be good. This is not good. Right. I am not. Is this an NAP violation, Johnny? I don't know. It's kind of like seeing a drunk <laughs> okay. driver swaying, right? Like, you can see it like right. that dude. Right? Like, that's right. what I'm saying. Like, again, like, if you're drinking and driving, I have no problems with that as long as you are not impeding on my life, liberty, or property, right? Well, I see this right. vehicle and flying off the trailer. And then I'm like, I'm getting in the other lane. I'm not getting behind this thing. Right. So finally, this dude just takes off. Just ass on the freeway. And then finally, like 10 minutes later, I see like a ratchet strap on the ground. Then I see wood. And then I see like a whole bunch of debris on the, on the, you know, on the freeway. No, there was the fridge in a, like in a crate on the road. Yikes. I see the other truck, the truck that was carrying it with the, with the trailer pulled over on the side of the road. And I'm like, what problem did this guy have? Did he not understand aerodynamics? Probably not. No, it's crazy. You're, you're very passionate about this. Is a lot of f words for the beginning of the show today. So I, know. I can tell I'm, you I'm, are. I am fired really up about upset. It. No, I, I was because I was like in danger, and I like I saw it happening. I was like, God damn, this is gonna fucking happen. So I was rather upset about it, but I just was wondering, like, what the fuck? Holy crap! You know what I mean? Like, what what was this person thinking? Like, why would you put a refrigerator? I mean, like I said, the gate was like a foot tall on the back and they just strapped it down. And this thing is like five to six feet tall. Mm -hmm. And and they think that they're going to speed while having this big crate on the back. I, I, 
is I, and the best part about this is there's already a law about that, and it laws don't change behavior all the it time. It doesn't. There, there already is a law about this. Like, don't do stupid. Like, don't do stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, secure your load. That secure is the law. your yeah. load. Yeah. And this guy's a moron. Let's talk about smart people because I, I know we have one on the show today. Yeah, we do. And I'm really excited about this guy. Zach Slayback is a career expert who works to help individuals and corporations get ahead at work. He's the author of the forthcoming book, How to Get Ahead, and the owner and president of Get Ahead Labs, a boutique consulting firm that works directly with corporate clients to attract, promote, and retain top-tier talent. He is also a partner at the San Francisco-based venture capital firm, 1517 Fund. Zach focuses in on supporting portfolio companies with talent and hiring. He was one of LinkedIn's most influential voices on education in 2015 and has been published in Newsweek, the New York Examiner, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the Christian Science Monitor, the Foundation for Economic Education, among others, and has appeared on the Glenn Beck Program, Huffington Post Live, Michelle Malkin Investigates, and John Stossel. Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Zach Slayback! To the show, Zach. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Great, Thanks, man. Great. Thank you so much for being here on the show, man. It's awesome to have you here. And, dude, I, I first heard of you through Praxis, and I think that was one of the most amazing ideas ever. Now, are you, like, the founder, or were there a bunch of other people involved with the Praxis program? I was an early employee at Praxis. The The founder is Isaac Morehouse. Uh, he's the CEO of the company, still there. Uh, I was there, uh, employee number one or two, uh, along with TK Coleman back in like 2013. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I went and I was a business development director there for a couple of years. So that was, that was a job where if you're not familiar with Praxis, uh, what it is, is uh, an apprenticeship program, <laughs> right? Take ambitious young people, uh, give them jobs at startups, at small to medium-sized businesses, let them work there for uh, a couple of months, half a year. Programs changed in different uh, periods over the last couple of years. But the idea being, you can go do this for a certain period of time, and that signals just as much to employers as going and getting a college degree. So my job was to go find the business partners, sign them up, and sell them on this crazy idea back in like 2013. This was really crazy. Now it's it's funny. It's only been a couple of years, (laughs) but in, in 2019, I talk about this concept and people are like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. But back in 2013, people were like, what, why would you ever do that? Why wouldn't you just go, go get your degree or something like that? Um, so that was a fun experience. I, I, I got the opportunity to be involved there for about four years. And, uh, and since then, I've I've gone on to do more like career coaching and consulting, right. and I do a little bit of venture capital Very cool. work. Very cool. So right now, companies are having a difficult time differentiating between the different types of credentials, job history, and with their hiring practices. How does someone stand out as an applicant when every job seems to require a degree? Uh, you know, somebody put it really well to me the other day when I was talking to them about this subject, and they said, yeah, you know, I like to think of job uh, requirements as a wish mm-hmm. list, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like any wish list, you don't necessarily need to get everything on the list in order to get what you mm-hmm. want, right? Mm-hmm. And 
the whole idea behind having a, a credential on a job requirement, unless there's some weird legal requirement like there is for a handful of jobs, it's to signal something to the employer, right? Johnny and I were actually talking about this a little bit before the show started. You want, as an employer, to get people who are going to be able to stick with work for a little while, who are going to be able to stick through things. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, the really the only way that you could signal that is, can you go sit in a classroom for four years? <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Yeah. That's Proving tough. your commitment to it. It's yeah. like, I am dedicated. I am dedicated. I am sitting in this chair. I'm dedicated. Go, professor, go. Right. And it actually it has nothing to do with the skills that people actually gain. There's a, there's a ton of good research on this. Brian Kaplan just had a book come out on this called The Case Against Education. Oh, yeah. People learn to the test, they take the test, and then they forget the vast majority of Correct. what they've learned. Mm-hmm. So anytime anybody tells you that, well, you know, you'd want to go get this credential so that you can pick up certain skills, it's like eh, 90% of those skills plus there's good research that you don't get it. And that's not why people are right. there, right? There's a, an old thought experiment we would do when I was going around doing campus talks about Praxis, and I, I'll still do it to this day. Go to a college campus. Give a talk in a college campus to a room of uh, 100 mm-hmm. students, right? I, re- I remember doing this a couple of times. You ask them, how many of you, if you didn't get a degree at the end of the four years you were here, you still had to spend as much time you were, as you are spending here, you still had to spend as much money, and you still have to do all the work, but you don't get a degree at the end, how many of you would be here? In a room of 100 students, maybe two or three raise their hand. And those wow. two or three should go become professors. Wow. right? Because that's what academia is, really. If you are there for a consumption good, you will love being a professor. But the majority of them, why are they there? They're there to get a job. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of ways for people to get around that. More and more often, the companies that I'm working with all over the spectrum, whether they're small startups uh, through the venture capital firm that I support, or they are my consulting clients, which are much larger companies, I'm seeing more and more often people don't even have a degree requirement listed for jobs that four or five, six years ago required Yeah, you know, uh, just to to make a comment about what you're saying, you almost don't want to work for a company who just looks for the degree instead of looking for the talent or the uh, the drive to achieve whatever their goals are for the people that they hire, right? Like you would rather work for a company who sees through that. I, uh, I'm working with a young man right now, software developer, self-taught, 18 years old, you know, wise beyond his years. Uh, I'm working with him to get him uh, a job at a company. And he's come up against a couple of jobs here in our region, which is a little bit more traditional uh, that say they require a degree. And I tell him, first of all, it's a wish wish list, not an actual right. requirement. Mm-hmm. Secondly, if you actually talk to them, they said they wouldn't talk to you because you don't have a degree. You don't want to work. Exactly. That's, That's a right. bunch of douche nozzles. It, I mean... Well, like millions of students, though, like this is the thing. Millions of students are going to these universities. They're coming out with a mountain of debt. I think the debt of all the students with student debts here in the United States is like equivalent to Canada's gross domestic product. What are problems with it's about $1.5 trillion? Yes, it's, it's ridiculous. Wow. What are the, some of the problems with degrees and the education system? And what are some of the alternatives that people can embrace as of now since you've been here? So when you think about the way that universities work as credentialing authorities, right, uh, the incentives are all messed up. They make no sense. However, you go, you sit, and you learn for a couple of years 
from people who many of whom have never actually worked in the field that you want to go work in. And you pay a tuition that is totally, completely removed from the actual performance of the university in preparing you for the workplace. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not like you can go to, you know, Michigan State for four or five years, uh, graduate, then have a difficult time getting a job and then go back to Michigan State's registrar office and be like, hey, I want a refund. Mm. Yeah, exactly. You can't do that. Like, (laughs) I hate this school. I want a refund. It doesn't happen. No, it's impossible. And I, and I don't want to pick on Michigan State. I've actually, just in the last 24 hours, I've had people from you know the prestigious university that I went mm-hmm. to uh, reach out and say, I can't get a job. Yeah. So like, it's, not, wow. <laughs> it's not just a, a, a mid-tier school thing. What you're seeing more and more often is uh, what are called ISAs. I'm really, really bullish and optimistic about these. It'll be interesting to see if universities can start incorporating them. Uh, it's called an income share agreement. So uh, a good example of this is a company called Lambda School. And Lambda School does is you come into their program, you get accepted, uh, they teach you how to become a software developer, and then they get a certain percentage of your income for like two years up to Mm $30,000. And they get that percentage only if they get you a job that pays more than $50,000 a year and uh, only up to a certain amount, right? Mm -hmm. So. Of there makes a ton of it sense. does, though. That sounds pretty cool. That's very innovative. Yeah, I, I wrote about this recently at fee.org. Um, if you just look for my name on fee.org, I've got an article okay. about this. Uh, they, they just raised a bunch of money, and all these paper belt elitists in like New York City journalists who are probably unemployed now <laughs> uh, were, right. were shitting on it. They were like, oh, Silicon Valley invented progressive taxation in state universities. And it's like, <laughs> it's nothing like that. <laughs> Oh, right. oh, dude, that's great. Well, in this age of tech and information, what's the most promising career or industry for growth potential for young people to look into? Oh, man, I, I'm going to be honest with you, and I don't like that question. Oh. <laughs> oh. Because I think that that changes very quickly. Uh, and, I, and I don't want people to be thinking at 20 years old that they necessarily need to be choosing a career that they're going to be doing their entire life. So what I teach my readers to do and what I teach some of my um, some of the employees at my clients to do is invest in what I call high leverage skills. Right. 90% of the time when somebody says the word leverage, it's, it's business speak, but here I actually mean something by it. Uh, a, a high leverage skill is a skill that you can take with you into any career. Perfect. And it's one that will help augment your success in any career. Some examples of these uh, would be, I think, I hate this word, but I think networking, being able to build a good network mm-hmm. is a high leverage skill because if you're a software developer and you're very well connected, you're going to have better uh, career performance than if you weren't. Well, plus, connected. you know people. Yeah, you know people. I know Jim over there. He works at business A and he's pretty good and he knows guys in business B and C. And if I get to know Jim really well, I have my opportunities just expanded twofold. Well, it, it, at least twofold. I mean, something like that, that ability, kind of like these soft skills that allow you to build relationships, right. those are really nice skills for people to have. Um, you know, verbal communication and, and being able to write well are kind of like offshoots right. of these. Um, 
I, I can't tell you like in on January 20, what is it? Like 26, 2019. These are the four jobs that you should be looking I at. I think this is actually better advice. I asked that question for the listeners and I love where you took it because yes, you have to find what your innate talents are, uh, strengthen the connecting parts of that. Like what would help you use those talents, strengthen right. those skills and then, and then promote yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the a corollary version of that question is, um, you know, like, what should you major in? And, you know, I tell people, it's like, look, I, I'm a writer who does cons- who's a consultant who also works at a venture capital firm, and I studied philosophy. Mm. Right? Like, <laughs> so that's really going to help you out here. It, it, yeah, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell. I think people are, it's always a hard sell when you're jumping off of the track that we had laid out for that's us. That's exactly right. right. It is. Zach, you're an advocate for apprenticeship programs unlike internship programs, okay? So apprenticeship programs pay you and you actually work in the field of your desired interest. Is there really any advantage of working as an intern except for maybe making really good coffee? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I like the the word apprenticeship and I like moving away from the internship language, uh, not just because I think that for the work experience side of things, you tend to get a little bit more work if you kind of view it as an right. apprenticeship. Uh, there is an important component here. I talk about this a little bit in, in my new book uh, of picking up tacit knowledge. A lot of the skills and knowledge that allow somebody to succeed in the workplace can't be taught through a textbook or in a mm-hmm. classroom. It's knowledge that you gain from working with somebody who is more skilled than you in the, in the job you want to take mm-hmm. on, right? If you're thinking of your role as an intern, you're not really thinking of your role as I want to become a master at what the person who is working above me is doing. But if you think of yourself as an apprentice, it's a lot easier to make that mindset shift. So I kind mm-hmm. of like the the verbiage uh, switch, not necessarily just because of the work experience, but also because for the person who is working, it puts them in a better mm-hmm. mindset. It puts them in the position where they think, okay, I am training to get better at this and what I am doing here and creating value right. here. Uh, so I, I always tell people, it's like, look, if you want a quote unquote internship, go to a company that you find interesting, propose to them some work that you can do and make yourself indispensable. And then eventually the cost of actually replacing you gets so great to them that they're, they're going nice. to pay you. Yeah. Right on. Right on. I, I think that word choice and, and choosing our words carefully is something that this world is not focusing enough on and teaching our young people that um, how we say things and the way we package them changes not only how we think of them, but how other people learn, uh, get to the root of things, if that makes sense. Um, As a marketing expert, what do you think the libertarian movement is doing correctly? And where do you (laughs) believe we can make influential changes? Oh, this is, this is an interesting question. It's a good Um, one, really. Good question. Thanks. Yeah, because I, I'm not a like I'm not a professional libertarian, but I've been sure. you know I've I've been up through the events and the student organizations, so I've definitely seen a lot. Um, yeah, it's actually I, really interesting. Yeah, so good. No, I love that we're asking you who is not um, a token yeah, how libertarian. Are we not if you doing will. It, right? Come on, man. Because I mean, like yeah, the thing is, <laughs> we're failing. Apparently, we are because everyone's like a libertarian. What the hell is that? 
thing there's one thing that i i remember um years ago having a conversation i think it was with isaac morehouse where i was kind of talking about you know you always get the question from people like how would the market deal with x right and it's really easy to get caught up in and try to come up with all these potential solutions but uh, an answer that's really satisfying to libertarians especially if you're someone who's like more analytically oriented in libertarianism is well that's the beauty of the market it can come up with all these different options and explore them right Mm -hmm. But that's really not compelling from a marketing perspective. (laughs) People buy things, they engage in things, they stay at a job. I was just talking about this the other day with with an executive downtown where it's like somebody stays at a job because they can see a compelling and clear future at that job. It's just like a relationship, right? You stay in a relationship if you see a future in that relationship that's clear and compelling to you. And I think that libertarians have a bad tendency to... Uh, not paint that clear and compelling picture, right? Mm-hmm. So making a shift towards doing that, I think is really, really strong and would be really helpful for them. And I think that something that they do that we do well is uh, the power of contrast, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And is, you know, especially in the last couple of years with the political dynamic in the United States uh, is, is saying we are not X, right? Mm-hmm. People make decisions and they have feelings based on very quick uh, heuristics that they see in the world Absolutely. around them, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And, and feelings, like, feelings like excitement or gratitude or resentment or envy are almost all devi- defined by the expectations that people have around mm-hmm. them. Yes. And you want to shift those expectations and you want to violate them in good ways. I think that the power of contrast is really helpful for that. Okay. Oh, Zach, one thing that you were talking about, you've given speeches on YouTube and I th- I found it very interesting. You were talking about opportunity cost and how that can relate to being successful. Uh, I don't know yes. if you can kind of go into that a little bit because I thought it was really just remarkable how you kind of stated, you know, like how we who are transitioning, like right now I am transitioning out of a job that I've done for four years into a new profession and how that benefits me and how I have unlimited success in what I can do in my life. And I'm very interested in hearing if you could explain to our listeners about opportunity cost and how that relates to our success in whatever endeavor we want to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so I, I would always hear from people when I started talking about career stuff, um, the, the really cynical reaction I sometimes heard from people is like, well, you know, you're well-spoken and you can write and, you know, you're a white male, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, what about people who they, they don't have anything like that for them to right. honor, right? And I, I actually think when you're making a transition in your career, whether that's the very beginning of your career or you're changing career tracks or you're going into a totally new job, you have this really cool advantage that's a lot harder to get when somebody is at like the peak of their career. And that's that you have very, in, in all of your choices, you have very low opportunity cost, meaning your time just isn't that valuable, mm-hmm. especially compared to people who are more experienced than you in what you want to do, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about that, there's actually like this, this, this gap between the value of your time and the value of the time of somebody you want to learn from or work for or become. And that means... This busy person, whether they're an entrepreneur or they're an executive or whatever they are, they have a thousand things to do in a day, right? right? And they can probably only do like four of those things, right? I I saw recently a World Economic Forum talk where Jeff Bezos pointed out, he's like, 
the job of a busy executive, whether it's it's at a big company or a small company, is to make a few good decisions a day. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. What you want to do as somebody who's starting out in a new place is find the things that they don't have time to do. Find the things that are just not worth their time today to work on, that are getting dropped on the floor. Mm-hmm. Chances are, even though it's not valuable for them to do it, it's crazy valuable for right. you to do it. Right? Yeah. Example from my early career, right? And just to go back to the practice example because I was thinking about this earlier today. Uh, I almost stumbled into the opportunity to do business development there because mm-hmm. I remember I was actually originally working as an intern. I was just bored on, on the weekend on the weekends in college, and I went to Isaac and I asked him, like, "Hey, let me do some work for you. I, I'm doing fine in school, but I'm just bored out of my mind." And he gave me you know, some tasks that I could do that it wasn't worth his time as a founder CEO of a company to do. So that's one example of that right there. And then I was able to come on full time and kind of take on some ops right. stuff. But then two, as a company grows, especially startups, uh, you tend to find that positions get split out of other positions. So Praxis was looking to hire a business development director, <laughs> this kind of like sales job, career coach right. job that, that I was talking about earlier. And that was a job that it f- was formerly captured by the CEO, mm-hmm. but he his time was too valuable to be able to go out and be doing sales all day. He had to do big like strategic stuff, right? So I just went to him and I said, hey, look, I, I know you're thinking about hiring like a C-suite person for this, but here's my proposal. Here's how I would do it. Here's the advantages of hiring me, even though I'm very inexperienced in this area. I can get experienced fast and you know that I have really low overhead and really low personal burn rate. So... I can pound the pavement in like these six cities. Sure, yeah, that makes partners. sense. Yeah, you can do the stuff yeah, that they that, don't want to do anymore. Division of labor. Yep, that they just don't have the exactly. time to do, right? So think about, think about how valuable their time is, what they're trying to get done, and what they can't get done based on what their like, to-do list exactly. is for the day. And yeah, use that. It makes perfect sense. It's genius. It's okay, so simple. So like, again, going back to, you know, being an entrepreneur, being, building yourself, building your personal brand. What are some things public schools and colleges, right? What are they failing at to address? And how is our current education system holding back entrepreneurs? Because I've noticed that we are in a, a society now who just wants to work for other people instead of creating value. They just kind of want to just go with the flow and have somebody else do all the hard work and they can flip burgers. I think there's a, a disconnect. And then talk about seizing the means of production. Which exactly. Me exactly. Go on. <laughs> like, like, yeah, exactly, Raylene. It's like kind of like this. It's like we are not creating value anymore. We're not in that mindset. And to me, Zach, it seems like the public schools are just telling us how to be a better worker, not necessarily teaching us how to create value. Yeah, I'd well, I mean, actually to piggyback on this question uh, also, because I had a similar question, Johnny. I love it. Um, and are millennials less entrepreneurial overall from other generations? Anyway, I'll, I'll step back, let, let you do your thing. So the last time I looked at the data, I have an article that I wrote on this. Uh, I think it's on my personal website and it's on LinkedIn. Uh, why are there so, where are all the young entrepreneurs or why are there so few young right. entrepreneurs? Uh, last time I looked at the data to answer your question, Raylene, is ownership in business, which is how we kind of track the entrepreneurship rate, is at all-time lows since the Fed started collecting that data in the 80s. <laughs> Uh, this again, this was a couple of years ago, and the number is actually inflated a little bit because it includes like if you're an employee at Uber right now, a full time employee, you technically own some stock in a privately held mm-hmm. company, right? Mm-hmm. So, 
the data is a little bit inflated even as that goes. So to answer your question, as far as the data goes, it looks like young people are less entrepreneurial. They're starting fewer businesses than they were years ago. There's a lot that goes into that. In that article, I kind of talk about why I think that is part of its student debt, part of its regulations. A big part of it is cultural, which is something that I think is picked up through the school system to answer your point, Johnny. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you really want to dig into it, compulsory state schooling is a product of both state and large corporate. I don't, I don't want to say conspiracy because it's not a conspiracy, but it's cronyism. It's them, yeah, it's them getting into bed with each other. Exactly. Right? Crapitalism. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It, Protectionism. It, it came out of the early 20th century. Uh, you can go back. John Taylor Gatto has great stuff on this. Love um, him. He's got a good book uh, called Dumbing Us Down. I'd recommend picking that up. I wrote the Didn't forward. did you I, do a forward on that? I did, yes. Oh, very uh, good. Was, was, good research, Raylene. Good job. <laughs> well, I, I follow Zach, so I knew all these things already. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a really cool opportunity. Um, but uh, Gatto has a lot of good research on this. If you really want to dig into, sure does. Uh, like the Columbia Teachers College and and the and the Brain Trust and all these things in like the early 20th century that can got together and put a lot of funding behind the idea of compulsory state wow. schooling. But you know, I was reading a, a book uh, a couple of weeks ago by Jane Jacobs, really underappreciated thinker. She's really well known for her book, uh, The Life and Death of Great American Cities. But she had another book that she wrote in like 2002, right before she died, uh, called Dark Age Ahead, uh, which is a very uplifting book. Um, <laughs> it sounds really yeah. happy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not. Um, and one of the things she talks about is she thinks that every couple decades has kind of a theme mm-hmm. to it, right? I was talking with one of, my, one of my colleagues at the venture capital firm I work with about this because he... Uh, has been involved in years with things like the 20 Under 20 Fellowship, the Teal Fellowship. And what we think is the the theme of modern day America is safety. Mm-hmm. Ooh, interesting. interesting. It's, reflect, it's reflected in people's job preferences. It's reflected in a lot of the research that Lenore Skenazy, the free range moms lady has done. It's reflected in the fact that if you go to a playground, there's like this really soft, like rubber mat floor on an outdoor playground instead of wood chips because wood chips can like get in the right, eye, right. right? All over the place. And that's something that you should absolutely expect people to value if you put them through 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of zero exposure risks to or threats. Irregularity. Yeah. Risks. Yeah. Right. yeah. And now we're a generation yes. in of statism yes. to an ultimate degree. So I can only imagine how indoctrinated we are to be so security focused. It's actually that's unreal. true. Like safety, security, safety first, and all these regulations regulations and all this bullshit legislation that is yeah. like it has influenced everybody the average person like kidnapping is at a as an all-time exactly. low and we only think everybody's thinks everybody's kids are going to be stolen away anyways O'Reilly, this show is brought to you in part by free talk live america's number one pro-liberty radio program these guys are on 190 radio stations coast to coast and they are live seven nights per week so please check out freetalklive.com again that's freetalklive.com anyways we'll be right back and we're going to come up with rocket fire after this quick commercial break and we're talking to zach thank you so much zach slayback and we're talking to raylene lightheart raylene you rock anyways though this is johnny rocket always launching ideas and we'll be right back rock and roll 
<laughs> this is great. Hey, Raylene, I'm going to head out and get some beer. Hey, what are oh, you guys like doing Ooh. in here alone? Oh, cute. What's, what's going on? What are you guys hiding? Come on, fess up. Well, we're just looking at my new calendar. It's a libertarian dad bods calendar. It is enlightening. Wait a minute. Did you just say a libertarian dad bods calendar? Really? I've actually never been so excited for July in my life. <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, come on. Natural rights, natural bodies, and all this liberty? Everyone should be excited about this calendar. Wait a minute. Why am I not in this thing? Don't be jealous, Johnny. Besides, you're a shoe in for next year. Yeah, hashtag Johnny Rocket Dad Bod 2020. Okay, girls, well, I better keep training. I might need some inspiration. Got you covered, Johnny. Don't worry. You can get your own at sclp.org forward slash store. That's sclp.org forward slash store to get your very own Libertarian Dad Bods calendar for 2019. Inflammatory. Uncalled for. Outrageously offensive. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Rockets two minute hate speech. of my own home in a private conversation with the love of my life about the Covington Catholic school students. The weird thing was, I caught myself prefacing what I was going to say with the caveat, I'm not racist, but now my fiance knows I'm not racist. I know I'm not racist. Anyone who knows me knows I'm not racist. Yet here I was issuing this off-spoken public disclaimer before completing a perfectly rational thought, totally absent of racist under and overtones, as though what I had to say could be dismissed as simply fucking racist. Why? Because of cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism is an extension of the socialist, economic, and political belief that puts everything in our American Western culture as being the oppressive byproduct of capitalism and its beneficiaries. The very words we speak, the manner in which we speak them, and how we as a society process and evaluate information are all believed to be the direct result of capitalism, which according to socialist rhetoric is inherently oppressive to the working class and minorities. I've previously mentioned how socialism, when it failed to take root as a political and economic ideology, wormed its way into academia under the guise of gender, ethnic, and LGBTQ studies. Cultural Marxism is what happens when this mode of thinking extends beyond the bounds of a classroom environment and manifests itself in a pervasive nationwide epidemic of hand-wringing apologists who hold their beliefs and ideas that run counter to what's socially permissible. So much so, in fact, that even edgy libertarian radio hosts who put out weekly rants dubbed two-minute hate speeches, such as myself, fall prey to this insidious brainwashing and catch themselves saying, I'm not racist, before speaking their mind to their partner in the privacy of their own home. In the aftermath of the electoral upset of 2016, many political pundits and mainstream media experts scratched their heads at how somebody as boorish as Donald Trump could possibly get elected. Anyone with a little bit of distance and their finger on the pulse of the nation could easily tell you how. Because Donald Trump, like Don Cummings and the Leave movement of Brexit, knew what these so-called experts refused to acknowledge. That people, silenced by others telling them that they're bigots for holding a differing opinion, may have been silenced in normal conversation. But they were very vocal in their votes when it came time to line up at the polls. Long story short... 
Cultural Marxism may have driven the dialogue underground, but it didn't shut it down. Not completely. Our nation, like many other similar westernized nations, is filled with frustrated, disenfranchised, silenced people, a majority in fact, who are sick of being told that their very rational, very intelligent attitudes, beliefs, and ideas are bigoted. And as long as we permit cultural Marxism to shut us up in the public arena, we will never, ever let this pervasive feeling of discontent, disenfranchisement to manifest in the socio-cultural sea change we are so desperately need in order to restore liberty. But how exactly? Even within our own movement and political party, were we supposedly filled with rational anti-authority contrary types who eschew cultural norms and stand up for what they believe in when standing alone? Libertarians are not immune to this disease of cultural Marxism. Consider the curious case of our own chair, Nicholas Sarwark, and his bizarre attack of the libertarian talk show host and longtime advocate for the Mises Institute, Tom Woods. Tom Woods, over the course of his career, has amassed an impressive, respectable following by preaching a highly principled message in Austrian economics. Yet when the Libertarian Party was under the threat of infiltration from the white nationalists of the alt-right, the Libertarian Party chair, Nicholas Sauerk, decided to put forth a completely toothless online petition to decry the presence of the alt-right in the LP, and then demanded Tom Woods sign it lest he be perceived as an alt-right sympathizer, or worse, a racist. Notwithstanding the fact that Sarwark, like many other members of the Libertarian National Committee, could easily have put forward a resolution within the confines of the LNC that served the same purpose and foregone the acquisition of signatures from outside members. This bizarre political gambit by Sarwark, designed to push perfectly legitimate paleo-libertarians and conservatarians out of the party by targeting one of their most respected media personalities, is illustrative of how persuasive cultural Marxism is. Coupled with that, the decision to remain completely silent on the rise of the Libertarian Socialist Caucus, while at the same time benefiting directly from the volunteer efforts of one of the most outspoken members on his own mayoral campaign. And you've just entered the goddamn Twilight Zone. So if society has fallen ill, the Libertarian Party doubles down and re-elects a chair that employs the same tactics in his own rhetoric and even yours truly finds himself fretting over being labeled a racist simply for acknowledging the undeniable behavior of a black Israelites targeting Catholic students on a field trip at the Lincoln Memorial. How the are we supposed to beat back this tide and let freedom ring? I'll tell you, we clean house. My girl always says this and I completely agree. Liberty starts with you. You must uphold these principles and carry them like a goddamn badge of honor. Wherever you go, even at the risk of being insulted or assaulted, our nation, not just in the halls of Capitol Hill, but in your very own goddamn mind, is a war zone. And just like any other battlefield, each of us is a standard bearer for liberty. What did we do when we charged into battlefield during the Civil War and those carrying the flag fell? The rest of us picked up the mother flag and kept charging. If someone within our own rank and file, or even one of the four goddamn star generals out there supposedly organizing the attack, does something wholly destructive to the movement of liberty, what do we do? We wrest the mantle from them, step around them, and keep charging forward, not by becoming hand-wringing apologists for their behavior, lest we be labeled racist. Liberty is not racist. It's the most egalitarian belief you can hold. It is a world in which anyone, regardless of race, sex, color, or creed, has exactly the same natural rights. Liberty doesn't give a flying 
African-American, transsexual, female, you, just like anyone else in this world, has the exact same rights to life, liberty, and justly acquired property. Liberty won't validate your existence. That's not its fucking job. But it will ensure you that you won't be murdered, enslaved, or stolen from. And that's more than any other belief system or ideology out there. So stand up, fight back, push back against the tide. We will not apologize, and we will not yield. And you can take your socialist Marxism rhetoric and shove it up your ass. is a children's media company for children's ages 0 through 7. Our stories teach the foundational principles that underlie libertarianism and relate them in a manner that even the youngest children can understand and enjoy. Little Libertarians was founded by attorney and libertarian activist Dory Goikman. We teach the basics of self-ownership, non-aggression, and property rights to babies, toddlers, and young kids. Use coupon code ROCKET, R-O-C-K-E-T, for 40% off of Little Libertarian products at www.littlelibertarians.com. Again, that's www.littlelibertarians.com. Blast off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my Rhea Truth, Miss Ridley Lightheart. Bam! Thank you. This is so fun. Bam! I'm having a great time. We're here with Zach Slayback. Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to come out here on the show. I'm having a good time. Dude, I really love what you have to say, and I love your spirit of entrepreneurship and your willingness to share your ideas with people, to make them grow, to think outside the system, and to develop themselves so they can create value in our culture and in our society. And I think that's the most important thing that we need to focus in on is how do we change people's thinking? How do we make people more successful in their lives and how can they create value so the government doesn't have to come in with legislation and fuck everything up? <laughs> Basically. Okay, so what we do here on the second segment, it's called Rocket Fire. What we're going to do here on Rocket Fire, sirs, I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically, philosophically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Zach, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? I, I guess I am. <laughs> All right, here we go. Question one. Why is money the most common way of judging success? Uh, if, if somebody has convinced enough people to give them money and they've done so in an honest fashion, then they've added that much extra value to other people's lives. I mean, try to get somebody to give you money. Go try to sell something. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not. No, it's not. Two, can money buy happiness? Uh, you know, my old colleague, TK Coleman, had a good post on fee.org the other day about this. Uh, money can't buy happiness, but it can make, the, it can make pursuing it a lot easier. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, man. Question three. Is your idea of success the same as your parents' idea of success? Uh, you know, it's it's funny. My parents have both have like really traditional kind of backgrounds. Mm. Um, my dad went and got a degree, worked at a big, uh, big kind of company that has like a union and seniority and everything like that involved in it. My, my mom, you know, is from a family full of baby boomers. So the quick answer is no, it's not the same. Uh, but I've, I've kind of slowly convince them to come around to my side of things. Mm-hmm. Right on. Right on. Question four. Have there been any failures that have made your life better? 
Well, um, you know, I've in a couple of cases uh, not gotten things that I really wanted to get. Right. Mm. So, like, I actually went and pursued a specific job opportunity shortly after leaving Praxis. And uh, it, this isn't something I talk about a lot because, you know, I'm, I'm like a quote career in well, professional development like, yeah expert. you're supposed to be like positive all the time right so you can't well, be like yeah, I it, fucked that shit and, up back in 1952 you know you can't say that or your parents <laughs> or whatever yeah and I didn't end up getting it um, you know and it was, it was an opportunity I really really wanted to work in and I think in one way like it not getting that has allowed me to do a lot of things that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do like the book deal that I was able to land that's great that's great question five how do we help students of all ages discover their passions? I expose them to more experiences. It's as simple as that. Give people opportunities to go out and work in the real world. Why do you think that like a fifth grader, when you ask them what do you want to be when they grow up, they give you one of five answers? Teacher, cop, fireman, like pilot, and like one or two other things. It's because those are the jobs that they see on a day-to-day basis. They don't know like what a, a marketing associate is. They don't know what uh, a financial analyst is because they don't see these things. Give them more exposure to the real world. Interesting qu- answer, man. I really like that. Qu- I really like that answer. Question six: What does an educated person look like today? Besides me, <laughs> <laughs> I did the sniff there too. Yeah. You know how I'm, I, how I define education in uh, my first book is it is the process of equipping people with the uh, the mental psychological, philosophical, and physical tools to navigate their world competently, right, Mm -hmm. as an independent person. Uh, So I think a well-educated person is one who they're going to come up against challenges that would normally crush somebody who wasn't as well-prepared as them, and they find a way to create opportunity for themselves. Interesting. All right. Question seven. Do you think the role of the teacher is changing? And if so... How do we promote and encourage a new role? Mm, That's an interesting question. And I'll have to think about that a little bit more and maybe get back to your uh, listeners on it because I don't really consider myself like a pedagogy expert. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I do like to say there is a role for teachers in people's lives, whether those are like actual teacher, teachers, coaches, experts. And I think a good teacher is trained in helping people find the way to get the solution to the question they're after. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Question eight. Does budget cuts in education really affect students? And is this about drive and motivation and not necessarily about money? Uh, You know, John Taylor Gatto uh, used to say that uh, one of the big things that what compulsory state schooling is, is it's a jobs program, right? That's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons you'll never cut back on it is because people know people who are employed through it. So I think a big way to think about funding in schools is thinking of it as funding for a jobs program more than about uh, human capital. And like we were talking about earlier, there's pretty good research that when people go through more years of schooling, they don't actually pick up more skills. So (laughs) that's true. Yeah. The research on the, on the relationship between funding and uh, skill performance is a little bit mixed, but I think it's better to reframe the whole question is, uh, why are students in school and what is the outcome that we're trying to give them? Right on, man. Question nine. What are the disadvantages of being successful in life? <laughs> I know everyone talks about the positive, but there's got to be some negative in there. Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, one that I see often and 
I see this in people who are, you know, executives at companies and people who are students at elite universities. So kind of across the age spectrum is path dependency. So there's this expectation when you've built up a, a certain path that you've been on so far to continue down a certain path, right? And the more successful you get, the more people are going to tell you or think that you have to follow a specific kind of path, which is the weird catch-22 about success because you think what success would bring you is more opportunities, right? Right, right. But I, it's got this weird psychological effect on a lot of people where they're, they're more and more... Uh, risk averse to things outside of their current path. Right on, man. Question 10. How much do you think success depends on A, working hard, B, optimism, or C, fucking luck? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wish I could give like some real clever like percentage breakdown that it's like 50% working hard, 50% uh, optimism, and 20% good luck. Right. Knowing that that's well over 100%. It it, it Uh, is, yeah. I, did the math. I, I think that optimism precedes the hard work, though, because I know a lot of people who they're really great hard workers and are ridiculously, ridiculously pessimistic. So they don't even go out and put themselves on the limb to do things like uh, reaching out to people who can give them opportunities. Sure. Uh, there, there is definitely a luck component to it. I don't know how big it is, but I think optimism is a really underappreciated element of personal success. I am with you on that, man. And the bonus question. This is a special question. Oh, you're going oh, to like this. Buckle up. What personal qualities and attitudes pave the way? Oh, uh, for people in general? Yeah. To be successful. What are the personal attitudes and qualities? I mean, some people, you know, I've, I've never seen a successful person be like, you know what? My life sucks, man. My life sucks. Yeah. Going back to the previous question, I think optimism is a big part of it. Ah. Resilience and ability to pick yourself up. Uh, understanding, I, I like to think about it in terms of like flipping a coin, right? There is definitely a luck component to things, but if you know that flipping a coin, every time you flip a coin, there's a 50-50 chance of it getting heads or tails, right? Sure. So if you flip four tails in a row, that doesn't change the likelihood that you're going to flip a heads or tails the next time you flip the coin, right? right. But people often look at those four tails and think, oh, it's probably going to be tails next. But <laughs> right. No, that's not how the world works. Right. Understand that a lot of opportunities in front of you are actually independent of each other, right? Yeah. So that's how I like to think of resilience. You know, if you're doing cold calling, uh, you're, the only thing that is dependent uh, or that is constant between five different cold calls is you. So that four people in a row rejected you shouldn't affect the fifth person's reaction to you if you can understand that you are the only constant there. Awesome. Anyways, though, that's Rocket Fire. Give it up for Zach Sleepback. Bam. Great questions. Great, great answers. Bam, dude. Love it. Bam. Awesome. It was host Johnny Rocket. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to be right back. Rock and roll.
first off of Johnny Rocket, I'm here with my real truth, Miss Raylene Leonard. Bye. Woo. What and we're talking to Zach Slayback. Zach, thank you so much. And uh, really quick before Breenlene goes on her questions, because she has some wonderful questions for you. My question is really quick. Can you give us an update about your new book? I think it's important that you oh. get a little plug in there mm-hmm. for that. Me too. Yeah. So I uh, have taken a lot of the concepts and constants that I've seen over the last you know, years and years of working with both successful young people and successful older people, business owners, executives, uh, investors. And I really wanted to boil it down into a, a book that would make sense for people who, are, who want to get ahead in their careers. Uh, so early this summer uh, in 2019, uh, How to Get Ahead, a proven six-step system to unleash your personal brand and build a world-class network so opportunities come to you, uh, should be coming out from McGraw-Hill. You can get more info about that, including some of the bonuses that I'm going to be giving away to people who pre-order the book uh, by getting in my email list at zackslayback.com. So Perfect. six chapters, every chapter is independent of the other. So you can pick it up and you can read chapter five and get a ton of value out of it. Or you can read it all together and you get uh, the whole great being greater than the sum of its parts. Get a hundred percent value out of it, right? You get a, the whole, exactly. the whole shebang. All right. <laughs> awesome, dude. Thank you. Right. So you have a really large following of homeschoolers based on your support of alternate education and speaking about personally dropping out of an Ivy League school. Is there a marked difference between families who homeschool and those who don't? What are your observations? Hmm, That's a really good question. And one I haven't thought about in the sense of what are the major differences in the families. Um, As I quickly run through the data points I have in my mind, one thing that you would see that isn't really surprising to anyone who's listening to this program right now is that a lot of the homeschool families are uh, much less risk averse uh, mm-hmm. in their general lives. Uh, it's not unusual to see one parent being a business owner or to be taking like a, a non-traditional career path. Um, another weird trend that I've actually seen though too is that it's not unusual for me to find homeschool families where one of the parents is a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, which is like it's like hmm. <laughs> right, the uh the, the the vineyard isn't drinking its own wine. That's interesting. <laughs> I, yeah. I always I always think, wow, the people voting for their own raises don't want to put their own kids in the school. That's, oh, that's very telling. that's a good yeah. analogy. I don't like to read into it too much because it's often like a case by case basis, but it is a weird trend that I've definitely noticed. Um yeah, and you know, one of the big advantages I think from a career perspective of doing home education or doing unschooling or any variant of it, you have this flexibility at a much younger age to go out there and try things, expose yourself as a young person to more and more career opportunities, things you might find interesting. There are a lot of kids who just, when they're locked in a school all day, just don't have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went to a public school uh, out in rural Pennsylvania, and I was pretty fortunate that I think what exposed me to a lot of career opportunities was the fact that I was raised in a single parent household and my mom just didn't really have the time to like breathe down my neck. Right. <laughs> and, and so I was afforded a lot of freedom to go out and land mentors at a very early age and to do things like build a personal website and use that as a way to start writing and things like that, that I, I think is a lot harder for someone who if they're in the traditional middle-class family or upper-middle-class family in uh, a public school to do. 
control to Johnny Rocket. Ground control to Johnny Rocket. Well, we're out of time here, so we will have to continue this conversation at the after party. But if you would like to attend the after party and hear the rest of this interview, please go to supportblastoff.com and sign up to be one of the cool kids. We need you guys more now than ever. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Rock and roll.